Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to my first release of 2021. Normally, I release a monthly narrative episode on the first of every month. I'm currently sitting in a mostly packed up house with removal vans booked as I move. With all the chaos, I've not been able to finish off the main narrative show in time for today. I wanted to give you a mini-sode to tide you over till the next narrative episode, which I'm planning to release on the 1st of March 2021, as long as none of the removal men lose my microphone. I've been thinking about the direction of the show, and whilst I'm very happy with the main narrative, and lots of you have told me how much you've enjoyed the shows on Empire, I've decided to do a series of minisodes on Victorian dress and fashion in the 1840s to run alongside it. This will give you an idea of what people look like as we talk about the 1840s in the main narrative. Plus, I know lots of you are excited about Victorian clothes and fashion. People are already teasing me about ordering books on corsets and why I keep trying to find out if Prince Albert sometimes went commando. It is a huge subject, so we should get quite a few minisodes out of it. I'll admit, I've been looking forward to doing these for ages. I also promised to read out reviews and welcome new patrons. I was overwhelmed with lovely reviews at Christmas, so I've decided to do them in one go at the end of the minisode, along with thank yous to new patrons, rather than waiting until the next main episode. We are well into the Victorian era proper now. We've seen Victoria grow from a child to a queen. We've learned about the enormous changes caused by the Industrial Revolution and the coming of the trains. We've studied education and the importance the Victorians placed on practical skills. And we've talked about some of my favourite things, like fish and chips, ice cream and gin. We've even seen the first modern power couple fall in love and get married. I haven't talked much about clothes though. Getting dressed is one of the fundamentals of human life. Talking about it will inevitably mean talking about people's bodies in a way that might sound like objectifying them. That's not the intent, it's just pretty inevitable because clothes and fashion are about looks. If you were a time traveller, Getting dressed is perhaps the most basic knowledge you need, along with how to eat and what money you're using. Yet it is surprising how little thought we give to the practicalities of getting dressed. This is often because we think of the Victorians as wearing period costumes like we see on TV, or just think, well, one black suit is the same as the next. And a lot of early Victorian shows basically recycle Regency Jane Austen style clothes or stick men in black suits. The reality is most of you would struggle to get into anything except the simplest of Victorian clothing. Of course the other problem I bet everyone has is that they mostly picture the rich and well-dressed and that wasn't the experience for the bulk of the Victorian population. When looking at the expensive clothes of the rich you are looking much more at Victorian fashion Victorian miners, for instance, actually found the mines hot underground and wore very little in the way of clothes. 
what they did wear would get filthy. They would rarely get to bathe, and good clothing was reserved for Sundays at church. Clothing was split by class, money, gender, the role it was going to be used in, a person's age, and even the time of day. The idea of dressing for dinner was a real thing in certain classes, but some of the richest dressed for different times of the same day. I remember once reading a newspaper article about the old TV show Friends. One of the comments was, God, it was so unrealistic. Who gets dressed up smartly in jeans around the house? Everyone just wears shorts or sweatpants. I admit I'm not the best person to talk about that since I consider jeans dressing down, but it sort of illustrates the modern idea of clothing, which is wear what you like, how you like, be comfortable. Hollywood stars wear jeans and hoodies, the same as the guy who serves them a low-fat vanilla decaf avocado latte with marshmallow fries, or whatever the rich and famous are eating these days. When we saw Mark Zuckerberg dressed in a suit to testify before Congress about Facebook recently, we instantly knew he was wearing the suit as a piece of ritual dress. He never normally wears a suit. Appearing in a suit and tie was no different than an English barrister appearing in court wearing a wig. Same thing with job interviews. Men are expected to wear a suit and tie, no matter how uncomfortable. But their day-to-day office wear would be completely different. It is an archaic dress custom that has been retained in specialised circumstances. Clothes as ritual need to be understood as much as clothes as fashion or clothes as cover from the climate. There's a huge amount of social conditioning to what we wear and why. There's a really huge shift in mindset then you will need to make looking at Victorian clothing. Victorian clothing was either hugely practical or aspirational. Comfort wasn't per se a key aim, except in particular workplaces like butchers and the fishing industry, coal mines, or other places where the work itself dictated the dress. The Victorians adopted this ritualised dress mindset in more situations than us. Conformity was prized, not rejected. To be a rebel in Victorian society was extremely dangerous. Being shut out of social circles was dangerous in the era before the welfare state or cheap mass food. Also, mass-produced clothing was not generally available. So the idea of really disposable clothing was for the super rich. Hand-me-downs and make-do-and-mend were vital. Yesterday's jacket worn by the nobleman would become today's second-hand jacket for his valet, then tomorrow's old but decent coat for the prosperous farmer at church, then the tatty coat for the working shopkeeper, then the rags for the rag seller, then finally the waste cloth for cleaning. Also, when looking back at history, it is easy to fall back into a picture of people in clothes that is static, but real people dress and adjust their clothes for lots of reasons. When Liz Hurley wore that dress, she was wearing it for a photo moment on the red carpet of the Oscars, but no historian in 300 years' time would say it was the typical dress of the rich upper classes 
on a daily basis in the 1990s. Costume dramas are especially dangerous as it is easy to assume if you are watching a show about the Victorians, you are seeing authentic dress, but you typically aren't. I'm not just talking about military uniforms being wrong for the regiment, but loads more besides, including hidden zips and Velcro for the actor's comfort, with a lot of things from other periods drifting in as they fit our preconceived ideas of how people would have looked. I've almost never seen a show get corsets right, for instance. Hairstyles are another big offender. We like our modern actresses to have loose, uncovered hair and to be thin-featured with sharp cheekbones. I'm not sure why, but that seems to be the general trend. Said actress is referred to as a ravishing beauty and probably appears in the Daily Mail's sidebar of clickbait shame. The thing is, though, the Victorian idea of a beautiful woman was almost certainly very different. Thin, pinched faces and sharp cheekbones were regarded as the mark of the starving lower classes. A beautiful Victorian woman was round-faced, preferably with a soft chin, perhaps even a double chin, and cupid lips. A pale, clean complexion was considered best, as a tan was a sign of a woman who worked out in the fields. Long, flowing hair uncovered was mostly considered a sign of sexuality and wantonness. So our modern actresses, with their gorgeous L'Oreal hair, their health club tans and perfect makeup, would have been in danger of being labelled as prostitutes in the 1840s. After all, Victorians would reason, why else would they wear makeup and let their hair flow freely in public? Plus, they clearly had tans from walking the streets, not to mention how they slouch and show their bare arms. Imagine travelling back to an age where Myla Kunis, Kira Knightley or Amelia Clark were all considered too thin, tanned and too fine-boned to be beautiful. Now we need to be careful here. I am just aiming to make you remember how beauty standards, and hence fashion, changes over time. I am not endorsing the objectification or commodification of anyone, and I'd never want to rate or rank women. Men, likewise, have idealised beauty standards to meet. It is dangerously easy to think only women are judged for their bodies and appearance. They are judged more often, more harshly and more obviously. But men in general, and especially in the Victorian era, were judged on their appearance, bearing, dress and physique. People with deformities or peculiarities were openly mocked in the street in early Victorian London. Again though, the standard to which they were judged and why was different from today. A beauty standard is somewhat independent of fashion, but it links to it. So we can say the male beauty standard of the 1960s and 70s was a somewhat rugged man who was a bit of a strong silent type, perhaps with a mix of rebel. But whether this person wore bell-bottom jeans or a sharp zoot suit was a fashion choice. The modern idealised male, well-muscled, impossibly ripped abs, 10% body fat, broad shoulders 
over six foot, with a strong square jaw, very problematic on its own terms. This is actually a vanishingly small portion of the male population who won the genetic lottery. Average male height in the USA and the UK is actually five foot nine. Looking for men to be over six foot tall today means looking at a sample of people who are three inches above average. Looking for men over six foot in Victorian times would have been frankly hard. Heights were actually in a slight decline during the Industrial Revolution. So in 1870, the average male height was only five foot five. Getting to 10% body fat for a man whilst retaining muscle requires intense specialised diet and exercise. A Victorian woman waiting for a six foot tall, dark and handsome man had better be prepared for a long wait. But if height wasn't a deal breaker, then she might be in luck. Most Victorian men did huge amounts of exercise and heavy lifting as part of their work and the calorie restrictions meant few men got really fat. They would, of course, develop punishing muscular and skeletal problems by their 40s instead. There's a huge amount we need to dive into here. So let's break it all down a bit. I'm going to start with class first. As with most things Victorian, class, religion and occupation were the most important things to know about someone. And it was fundamental to the Victorians' worldview. Remember that the Victorians didn't quite define class as we do. There were the upper class, known as the quality or nobility, then the gentry and senior clergy, then the middling sort of middle class, then the masses. Modern British people tend to describe and recognise classes more sharply as follows. Royalty, upper class, upper middle class, lower middle class, upper working class, middle working class, lower working class, the unemployed poor or homeless, and what is often insultingly called the underclass, or chavs or scrotes. I don't like demonising anyone based on group labels, but depressingly you can find these kinds of insulting terms in plenty of tabloid newspapers today. For clarity, a lot of history books will use this kind of terminology, but remember it is a descriptive label for modern readers. The Victorian terminology and attitudes were different, and in some ways less precisely defined and spoken, yet more complex and intimately understood. We don't normally talk about taboos in European history, but we should, because a lot of the social constraints around what people wear, were just that, and were taken just as seriously as a Muslim would take a taboo on drinking alcohol, or a Chinese person might take a taboo on not wearing red to a funeral. Think how rude it is to visit someone's house in Japan and wear your muddy shoes inside without taking them off. We accept people and cultures take these things extremely seriously. The Victorians took their particular customs around clothes and manners just as seriously. So it might seem funny to us sometimes because it is unfamiliar, but honestly, would it be okay to laugh at a Muslim for not drinking alcohol? Of course not. If a Victorian could afford better clothes, they usually tried to, 
as the better dressed you were, the better your social status was perceived to be, the better you were treated. A Victorian wouldn't understand you if you said, how you look isn't important. It's how you are inside and how good you are at a job that matters. To a Victorian, your appearance and dress indicated your worth as a person and to a large extent how good you were at your job. If you couldn't make the effort to present yourself to the world at your best, surely this indicated a defect in character and a lack of attention to detail. Victorians mainly tried to dress up, not down. One of the first things working class people did when they started becoming successful or established was to upgrade their clothes and their lodgings. That in turn could bring better custom to their business. A well-dressed butcher could get better meats and better clients, letting him then upscale his activities and begin a virtuous cycle as he became a master butcher. True, a master butcher was one who had had to demonstrate the core skills that set him apart from mere butchers, but his standing in the local church and with the local master butchers association would depend on his dressing well for the occasion. But getting above your station by dressing or acting out of your class was seen as social crawling in Victorian times. You might make a fortune in the cotton trade in Manchester and be able to buy that duke ten times over, but you would never be seen as his equal. You were from mere trade and no amount of fancy clothes made up for it. The upper class had the widest latitude to determine what was fashionable and correct, but also had the most disposable income to set fashion trends. The queen was most certainly dressed far better than a working class woman, although she was not considered well-dressed by the standards of European royalty. She was often seen as rather tasteless, or even dressing like a middle-class woman. Actually, Queen Victoria was sometimes quite deliberate in this. She sometimes wore middle-class dress styles at public events, just to send the message that she was an ordinary wife and mother. Well, as ordinary as you can be, when you have a literal army of servants whose lives revolve around making you look as ordinary as only rich people can afford. In general, you could immediately tell a working class person's dress from an upper class person's dress, but it wasn't a given. Returning to our master butcher example, let's look at Edwin Street, who was born in Hurstpierpoint. His father was a butcher, but died when Edwin was a child, so his mother apprenticed him to a butcher in Shoreham. He was the definition of the working class. By 19, he was qualified as a master butcher, an owner of his own butchers and slaughterhouse. He seized the opportunity to buy some local farms to own his entire supply chain. By the 1890s, he was rich enough to buy several acres of land and create a pleasure garden at Burgess Hill to celebrate Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee in 1897. It included a three-acre lake with a paddle steamer, swings and roundabouts, and the main building was prefabricated, then brought in by railway at a cost of £25,000, or around £3 million in 2021 currency. 
people visited from across southern England. Yet even as Edwin splashed out on this huge extravagance, he would have been viewed as working class. A multi-millionaire, working class man. His background was work. Even he was now a company owner. He cut a big figure, sometimes testing the ice on the lake before people were allowed to skate. His 23 stone form causing the ice to creak. But could you have told his class from his dress? Probably not. He was a man of the very late Victorian era. He would probably have worn a tailored black suit of some kind. He would have been able to afford the very best clothes and fabrics. He would have been upgrading his wardrobe as his finances improved. By the way, sadly, the pleasure gardens were closed by World War II, then built over by an industrial estate in the 1970s. Because, screw history, when there's a small, light industrial unit to charge ground rent for. If you were well-dressed, people gave you an amount of deference, depending on how high they perceived your status. This wasn't a nice doff of the cap or other ultimately meaningless gesture. Doors opened to you that were otherwise closed. If you were dressed as a gentleman and you and another group of men were questioned by the police, your dress automatically meant that your word was given far more weight and deference than that of the workman also being interviewed. Being a well-dressed gentleman meant the police would politely ask you things, whereas being dressed as a workman could mean being literally thrown out of some neighbourhoods unless you had someone to vouch for you. Some places would refuse admission without compunction, not just barbers or restaurants, but also shops. So far, so confusing. I've told you people dressed well and you could tell an upper class from a working class Victorian, except when you couldn't. Let's zoom in a bit. For the rest of this minisode, I'm only going to focus on men in the 1840s. A Victorian man was dressing for the British climate for a start. That means clothes had to cope with being able to have all four seasons of weather in one day sometimes. It goes without saying that nudity was highly unacceptable for Victorian men on most, but not all, occasions. No Victorian man would wander around in just a pair of shorts, no matter how hot the weather was. Let's be clear here. Victorian houses were really cold. When a Victorian woke up in 1840, cold was the default setting. Many firmly believed that windows had to be open to prevent the various ways of dying suddenly during the night. Given the possibility of carbon monoxide poisoning, this wasn't entirely crazy. Queen Victoria hated closed windows, for example. Many DOS houses or slums didn't have glass windows anyway. Imagine swinging your legs out of bed into a room that was four degrees centigrade with the window open and knowing that you had to wash and dress there. Washing meant a bowl of hot water on a stand and a scrub if the Victorian gentleman was lucky. If he was a farmer or a miner, no hot water for them before work, except for the tea. Early Victorians didn't believe heat or cold were bad for you. It was a sudden change of temperature that was thought to be dangerous. Hence the urban myth of you catching a cold when your mother 
urged you to wear a scarf outside so you didn't catch cold, she was repeating Victorian folklore about you getting a cold from the sudden temperature change, even though we all know a cold is a virus. Indoor daytime temperatures in winter could be around 10 degrees C or less, and reports of ink freezing in offices and schools were not unknown. This actually explains some things that strike us as odd in the Victorian age. For instance, the thick wool used for clothes and the sometimes very high-waisted trousers. If you are habitually living in 10 degrees centigrade, even indoors, trousers that don't uncover your lower back when you are bending are suddenly very appealing. And as a workman outdoors, they were vital. It also explains the popularity of mittens indoors. Plus, remember that the Victorian climate was still on average colder than today. With 1845, for instance, having an average winter temperature of minus two and a half degrees centigrade. There was a noted extreme winter in 1840 and 1841, and in 1849, there was a snowstorm in April that was deep enough to bury coaches in southern England. Partly due to weather and partly due to culture, all Victorian men wore underwear, no matter what their class. Usually, a long sleeve vest and a pair of drawers, almost certainly made out of some kind of wool. These were not seen by anyone outside the family unless they were being laundered. The drawers were from waist to ankle, tied or buttoned at the top or bottom, or a one piece could be chosen, a bit like you see in the Old West. Once the socks were on, the man had his underwear in place, vital on cold, wet days and in drafty houses, a bit toasty on the rare warmer days. Men's underwear didn't come with sexual connotations as such, which is good considering how stuffy it must have looked. It was expected to be washed regularly, and wearing trousers against bare legs was considered unhygienic. If you were a working-class man, you might wear this underwear down to a communal kitchen to start a fire, and make tea in front of the other lodgers. You would never ever set foot outside like this. For the upper class Victorian man, other people were making the tea, and they probably didn't give a damn if the servants saw them in their underwear in the bedroom, even if they were a guest in someone else's house. Honestly, it was actually strikingly similar to some modern base wear used in hiking or cycling, so don't confuse it with fluffy sweaters or loose-knit jumpers. It was very tight-weave. Instead, picture a fit Victorian cavalry officer with tight muscles in a base layer of merino wool sports underwear, and you can begin to see how practical it was. Ideal for riding and working. Since wool is excellent at drawing out moisture, then retaining it, it is surprisingly good in wet and hot weather. No matter what his underwear was made of, everyone knew a man was slim with a dashing figure. Our modern taste for big, strong-featured and heavily muscled men was not in vogue in the 1840s. Being heavily muscled was more a working-class trend, but the students of Greek and Roman art certainly argued for a figure on the lines of the classical sculptures. 
I shouldn't have to remind you that genetics plays a huge role in body shape and being told the ideal body for you is a cross between Achilles and Michelangelo's David was, and still is, depressing. In the 1830s though, men were told a slightly hourglass shape was ideal. Men, including Prince Albert, wore stuffing in their waistcoats to pad out their chests and then a tight waist to give them some curves, although the fashion began to die out in the 1840s. Albert was lucky that he pretty much hit nearly all of the hot buttons for male beauty standards of the time. Fortunately for the man of the 1840s, the beard wars of the 1850s were in the future. The choice of facial hair and hairstyles was reasonably simple. In the 1830s, clean-shaven was nearly mandatory for the dandy, with short sideburns down to the jawline. It was an unwritten law that men's hair should never be longer than the collar at the back. Hair on top was grown long and pushed forward to frame the face, the kind of curls you see on a romantic poet. But as with everything, real life made a lot of exceptions. So side partings, moustaches, and even a thin strip of neck beard right under the chin were not unknown. By the 1840s, things were changing. Sideburns were expected to be longer and more elaborate. Moustaches were becoming absolutely essential, which sucked if you were the type of man who had a receding hairline or couldn't grow facial hair to save your life. Prince Albert, of course, was considered effortlessly beautiful, with the perfect combination of hair, sideburns and moustache. Objections about him were almost always about him being German, rather than his looks. There are times when his clear Victoria was a little intimidated and insecure about how good-looking he was compared to her. Many of the women at court noticed and commented on his good looks. It is almost certain that he could have charmed his way to an affair or two if he had wanted, as they gushed about him and his even temperament. I know this is often a shock to listeners, but the young Prince Albert was very much the Chris Hemsworth of his day, a veritable Germanic Thor. Victoria described his looks as, quote, so excessively handsome, with such beautiful eyes, an exquisite nose, and such a pretty mouth, with delicate mustachios, and slight, but very slight whiskers, a fine, beautiful figure in the broad shoulders and a fine waist, end quote. If you are really struggling with this, have a look at actor Tom Hughes. He plays Prince Albert in the Victoria TV series. The resemblance between the real Albert and him is striking. The main difference is that Albert had slightly rounder features, kept his moustache thinner and had a softer mouth. Now have a look at photos of Tom Hughes in real life. He's clearly very good looking by modern standards, but when he's in costume, he looks incredibly different. But the real difference, when you set aside the clothes, is the moustache, longer sideburns, and a forward wave to his hair. It transforms him and makes him look old-fashioned. This works in reverse. If Prince Albert 
had been born today, he would almost certainly have been just as good looking to us because he would have styled himself with the more modern fashions. You'd have thought, oh, he's such a good looking guy. I really want you to remember this point. There were a lot of very good looking people in the Victorian era. They don't always appear that way to us because the style of dress and hair is so different. What they labelled as beautiful was different. That's just a question of taste. How many listeners have dated and fallen in love with people despite their sometimes questionable hairstyles? I want you to get past thinking of the Victorians as funny looking and realise most were just following the styles and fashions or dressing for their job. Don't laugh at those moustaches or sideburns. Try to look at the person themselves. As for Elbert's view, he loathed people cheating on their partners and didn't particularly get on well with women in general, or even men who enjoyed the party lifestyle and flash clothes. He preferred serious intellectual friendships with men of similar outlook and avoided frivolities or trying to be a fashionable trendsetter like the Prince Regent had been. Nevertheless, his looks and dress had a huge impact on the men's fashion of the day. Ironically, though, Queen Victoria's favourite painting of Albert didn't put him in the fashion of the day at all. The picture by Robert Thorburn put Albert in the dark black armour of a German knight against a dark blue background. Other paintings often showed him as stylized royalty, so aren't a good guide to his early fashion or dress, is a common problem in the pre-photography era. We have to rely on descriptions, which obviously barely capture how things really look, or look at paintings. But as Baldrick says in Blackadder Season 3, quote, all paintings look the same nowadays, since they're painted to a romantic ideal, rather than the true depiction of the idiosyncratic facial qualities of the person in question. End quote. If we are lucky, we have surviving clothes from the era in question, which is the best case. Be careful when judging these when you see them. There is an element of survival bias. Men were on average smaller, but surviving samples can bias your view too far. Queen Victoria's gowns and Lord Nelson's uniforms make clothes in the past look tiny, but both were noted as being especially small adults, even in their own time periods. By contrast, you are unlikely to find the clothes of a working coal heaver and part-time boxer surviving from museum display today, even though he might have been a six-foot mountain of muscle. Of course, where royalty went, the hangers-on and general bootlickers of the royal court quickly followed. Then the upper classes took note and decided, why yes, those Germanic dashing good looks are just what we've always wanted. Whatever his facial hair choices, the Victorian man could and frequently would shave himself, or perhaps have his valet do it. Alternatively, he could go to the barbers. He would have to be careful to pick the correct barbers for his social standing. Dickens observes this delightfully in Nicholas Nickleby. Quote, there presented himself for shaving, a big, burly, good-humoured coal-heaver, with a pipe in his mouth, who, drawing his hand across his chin, requested to know when a shaver would be disengaged. The journeyman 
to whom this question was put, looked doubtfully at the young proprietor. And the young proprietor looked scornfully at the coal heaver, observing at the same time, You won't get shaved here, my man. Why not? said the coal heaver. We don't save gentlemen in your line, remarked the young proprietor. Why, I see you shaving of a baker when I was looking through the window last week, said the coal heaver. It's necessary to draw the line somewheres, my fine fella, replied the principal. We draw the line here. We can't go beyond bakers. If we was to get any lower than bakers, our customers would desert us, and we might shut up shop. You must try some other establishment, sir. We can't do it here, end quote. So even in the supposedly universal male world of barbers, class distinctions were maintained. Notice that the owner is described as openly scornful. Class lines are emphasised, including in his dialogue. A Victorian getting above their station was put in their place without hesitation. The proprietor feared letting in lower class customers will lose him better class customers. The customer was most emphatically not always right and service didn't come with a smile. Equally, a gentleman stepping into a common barber's would also have raised eyebrows and probably some overcharging. Class was the fundamental to understanding the Victorian society. The razor would have been cutthroat and hopefully cleaned and well sharpened. There was no guarantee and it was perfectly possible to die from an infection caused by cuts whilst shaving especially in the tropics when mosquito bites were easily nicked. Even a skilled barber or valet could make mistakes. Some of those mistakes were probably more likely and more serious as the men would be drinking beer throughout the day. So it is almost certain that many a barber swayed drunkenly towards his client, cutthroat razor and trembling hand. It could be even worse if the barber preferred gin. Ah, if you survived breakfast without food poisoning, avoided being run over by a carriage, then made it through the town without keeling over from cholera or arsenic poisoning, the Victorian era found another way to make your day both exciting and unduly short. Men with older or less perfect skin, or just those who decided the best place for a cutthroat razor was far away from their throats, simply grew a beard. As an added bonus, a beard would keep a man warmer in the freezing houses. You can see why beards would go on to be almost mandatory for the Victorians in future decades. All this and our Victorian gent has only got his underwear on and his shave finished. Next came the shirt. This was halfway between underwear and outerwear. To be considered decent, it had to be covered at least with a waistcoat or a vest of some kind, then a jacket. To show just your shirt in the 1840s was risque. To take off your jacket and show your shirt sleeves was to be casual and only done in informal situations. The climate was not usually considered a situation, so you got the absurd spectacles of mad dogs and Englishmen out in the midday sun in shirts, waistcoats, and jackets, because a short sleeve shirt would be like going around in your underwear. To add to the complexity, the shirt collar wasn't part of the actual shirt. It had to be attached separately. 
and was a mark of wealth. Same with cuffs. This collar was upright, not turned down like today. Turndowns were rare, and for selective informal occasions, the collar was extremely heavily starched and was normally sent away, as professional equipment was required to get the shape and sharpness. It was sometimes so thinned and sharpened it could be used to correct head posture. A working class man would have just worn his shirt collarless, perhaps with a neckerchief and then a waistcoat. If the work was heavy digging, especially in hot weather, he might actually strip to the waist. According to Anthony Burton in the Railway Builders, the navvies building railways were typically wearing moleskin trousers, a double canvas shirt, a velveteen square tail coat, hobnail boots and a felt hat with an upturned brim. The outfit was completed with a bright coloured neckerchief. If you told a Victorian that in a century or so's time, a British Prime Minister would appear in public in just a shirt, collar unbuttoned and sleeves rolled up without a waistcoat, they would ask if he had run mad. Seriously, Tony Blair or David Cameron would have been seen as less appropriately dressed than a railway navvy. Ironically, in the 1840s, rich men would have worn coloured or patterned shirts, whilst plain white were for the working classes, something completely reversed by the end of the Victorian era. Most shirts were made and washed at home, but the collar had to be sent to professionals due to the enormous amount of starch and stretching needed. Most clothes were either tailored by a professional or by the wife and children at home. The sewing skills of even a Victorian child were far beyond anything you could achieve today. And if speed was not an issue, their technical ability would have been far greater than modern machines. Stitching was often of exceptional quality and what the Victorians called poor stitching would have been very good by today's mass market standards. That meant clothes could be surprisingly intricate, even for the prosperous working class. Many workmen would have fancy waistcoats sewn by their families as a mark of pride over their shirts, usually of coarse threads to stand the rigours of work. Linked to all of this was the idea that accumulating material goods, including clothes, was not just desirable, but moral. The growth of the consumer-based mass market economy would link to ideas of progress, modernity and morality. Goods, including clothes, were no longer merely for the rich. The middle classes, and even the prosperous upper working classes, wanted in on the action. With his shirt on, the civilian gentleman could now put on his socks, preferably silk, but usually wool. A man had to be very down on his luck to wear boots without socks. As you've heard before though, barefoot paupers on the street were not unknown. Then came the trousers. These varied according to taste. For the richer man, something neatly woven in wool, perhaps in blue, yellow or light grey. A check or striped pattern was popular. The colour was often, but not exclusively, worn to contrast with the waistcoat and jacket. Some daring men wore something silk and skin tight to allow everyone to see what they were packing, as the saying goes. There 
had always been rumours that some cavalry dandies wore riding breeches so tight they had to butter their legs to get into them. The early Victorian man was not aiming for drab, and waistcoats were the article that was usually the most elaborate to get the outfit to pop. Dickens was known for particularly loud waistcoats. The trousers in the 1840s were supposed to be slim or skinny fit. A clever trick for the fashionable was having a strap that went under the foot, and then the braces at the top over the shoulders pulled them tight, meaning not only did they not fall down, but they couldn't ride up easily either. The waistcoat was typically cut in a deep V shape to show off the expensive buttons. There was then a neckerchief or cravat. To complete the outfit, invariably a frock coat of some kind was worn, along with some kind of headwear when out of doors. Some men went for something more conservative to suit their business, while others, like Disraeli, went all out for the dandy look. Naturally, the hat would usually be a top hat made from something like felted beaver fur. This could reach around 8 inches in height. The sheer inconvenience of it spurred development of various caps and later derbies and bowlers to free men from the tyranny of the top hat, also known as skyscraper. Victorian men's style was going to become very important, not just because of the introduction of mass-produced clothes, but also because Victorian society was seen as something to copy by many countries around the world. Japan would be a stark example of how the fashions of London and New York were adopted to replace traditional dress, but these were by no means unique. The military were in a world of their own, so I won't go into detail today. Soldiers were issued with low-quality uniforms, officers paid for theirs to be hand-tailored, while senior generals wore what they liked outside formal occasions. If the Duke of Wellington decided a modified fox-hunting outfit was good enough to beat Napoleon, it stood to reason others could do the same. Off-duty, of course, the wealthy officers wore civilian fashions in the UK or their smart parade wear to turn the ladies' heads at country balls. Enlisted sailors were issued with slops, basically rags, and told to sew their own uniforms. Since the Navy of the 1840s still practised Napoleonic sail drills, their clothing could be fantastic, frequently comfortable, practical, and with luscious embellishments. Besides, getting standard-fitting uniforms for the average sailor would have been a challenge. Many were absolute beasts, with huge muscled chests, arms like gorillas, and legs like the mainmasts. Constant climbing, hauling ropes in a raging storm, or blazing heat seemed to turn them into hugely muscled and leather-skinned figures. Issuing a standard uniform would have been a challenge. All in all, then, the early Victorian fashion was a riot of colour and often flamboyance for men. Absolutely best illustration of this is a painting called Derby Day by William Frith in 1856-1858. It is a decade later than what I've covered today, but it captures 
the astonishing riot of colour you would have seen in the early years of the Victorian era. It even uses that most gendered of clothing parts, pockets, to illustrate the underlying themes of the dangers of gambling and temptation. The key men in the painting are a working-class man in a smock, which was essentially the working-class hoodie of the day. His hand was in his pocket as his worried wife tries to drag him away from the gambling. A middle-class man in fine light grey, cream and light orange outfit, with his hand in his coat pocket, eyes fixed on his fiancée's open purse. Then, on the far right, is the upper-class cad, utterly sneering and superior to the barefoot flower girl. He lounges against his private carriage, in which sits his resplendent wife or mistress. His trousers are chocolate burgundy. His waistcoat, a brilliant beige yellow with pearl buttons. His undercoat, a dark jaguar racing green, whilst his overcoat is like a loose robe of chestnut brown. He wears a brilliant white shirt with a turned-up collar and silk neckerchief. His top hat is wound with a plume of ostrich feathers, showing his wealth. His moustache is a beautiful V pointing down, and he has a cheroot dangling from his mouth. This painting was later than we've been discussing, but the main change between the 1840s and the 1850s was the number of middle-class people who could afford clothes that aped the upper class, so more people were better dressed. In his brilliant article on pockets and Victorian sexism, Christopher Matthews argues that the decision not to provide women's clothes with external pockets was a sign of the increasingly rigid gender divide. It was a conscious decision to create and reinforce a gender difference. In general, men had pockets for a specific reason. A man was expected to go out alone more. He might need his hands more in situations where a purse or a pack of some kind would be an annoyance. Driving a team of horses on a coach or carriage whilst holding a purse would be dangerous, for instance. But putting a coin purse down was an invitation to theft. Men needed calling cards, perhaps a pencil and notebook for their work, a handkerchief, a pocket watch, and probably keys. Coins were much larger than today, remember. Plus, for some gentlemen, more specialist equipment might be needed in a pocket, like a percussion cap pistol or a pepper box pistol. After all, a gentleman might need to defend the contents of his pocket, and it was an inherent right of an English gentleman to bear arms. Swords were becoming impractical in the more crowded cities, and open sword duelling was becoming verboten. So even the small sword had been dying out since the 1780s. It was replaced by the cane, or the sword cane, for those who still wanted a peace of mind a sword gave. Still, a gentleman worried about being attacked in an alley or a tavern would be sensible to keep a cosh or a pocket pistol in a pocket to defend himself. Military officers would wear a sword with their dress uniform, more to show off than in the expectation of you wearing it in a duel or a brawl. There's another reason for men having pockets and women being denied 
In the Regency world of Jane Austen, it became fashionable for richer women to have closer fitting, thinner clothes that hugged the lady's body more closely than it ever had before. To assist this, the waistline was hiked up towards the breasts, so the muslin material flowed tightly down her body. Putting pockets on this would be impractical, since the waist was now touching the breasts, and the fabric was increasingly gossamer, and so bulges would ruin the careful lines. Remember our example of Liz Hurley's red carpet dress? Well, that dress was the equivalent of the formal Regency dresses. When the Victorian era came in, fashions built on the existing habits of not giving women pockets and using the pocket as a stronger gender divide became more noticeable. Men's more angular, two-piece clothing of tops and bottoms didn't have this problem. I'll return to this subject in detail when we cover women's clothing in the 1840s. Okay, that's quite a lot for today. At least now you know how to dress as a man in the 1840s and roughly why things were the way they were. I'd like to say a big thank you to all new patrons for keeping this show ad-free and independent. I'd also like to welcome our newest patrons, lovable chimney sweeps Peter N and my good friend Philippa Tickner. Thank you and do keep hitting things with that shovel. Respectable governesses David Cram, R.C. Scott, Paul Trusvalu, Hohor Toff, Gregory March. You lovely people have helped fund my research into corsets, men's underwear and much more. Also, if you'd emailed me recently and I've not got back to you yet, I'm really sorry for the delay. I do answer all my emails, but house moving has slowed things down a fair bit. I'd also like to do the listener reviews. First up is from DC3, Amsterdam. Quote, I recently found this podcast and have covered the first three years of content over the past couple of months and have enjoyed Captivated by the presentation and perspective. Chris is a trained philosopher and brings that perspective to history, along with a desire to present the story from the ordinary person and analyse the events discussed, which makes thought provoking and leaves one with the desire to question and continue to peel back history. On the negative, there are some editing and mixing issues, but have become fewer over time. There are also fascinating diversions into Fish and Chips, The Matchstick Girls, Ida Lovelace and Dickens, which were great fun. The early instalment on Mount Tambora was fascinating given its global impacts. Others are more philosophical. I'm enjoying very much, but I'm not looking forward to having to wait a month between episodes once I get caught up. Great job and keep it up. One of the best I've listened to. Cheers, end quote. Thank you. I swear I am getting better at editing. Promise. Next up is from My First Cat, five stars. Quote, your podcast is one of my favourite ways to spend long days quarantining. Thank you so very much, end quote. Thank you, cat. Next up is from Luke Baxter in the UK. Quote, this is a thoroughly researched history podcast that goes into proper detail. The current episode I am listening to about the colonialization of Tasmania is fantastic. It's very grim in parts, but Chris lightens the tone 
with a beautiful description of the countryside of the island and tales of Governor Mad Tom and his drinking habits. End quote. Thank you, Luke. And yes, Tasmania is just an astonishing contradiction of beauty and horror. But I'm glad you enjoyed it. There's a lovely long one from Michael K. 19th C. Fan. Quote, Perhaps to begin as a background, I have had a keen interest in the Victorian era from the moment I opened up the first page of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre 30 years ago. I have read many of the great authors of the era, including the other Bronte sisters, Dickens, George Eliot, Elizabeth Gaskill, and Thomas Hardy. My self-education of the era has included reading many non-fiction books too. Also, I enjoy period dramas and the steampunk manga anime genre. In other words, I feel I can state an informed opinion about this podcast. The first immediate impression one receives from this podcast is the smooth and mellowing voice of Mr. Fernandez Packham. I think taking tea with him and his family would be a very pleasurable experience. As one listens to the episodes, one thing that stands out is Mr. Fernandez Packham does not try to impose some overarching ideological narrative, pick whatever ism is currently fashionable, on the ideas, people, and events. He takes the Victorians as they were, not as us moderns would like them to be. He does discuss ideas and events that shock modern sensibilities, but he always provides context. We moderns might condemn, but at least one understands why the Victorians held those opinions. I have found exploring history with passionate amateurs like Mr. Fernandez Packham is much more enjoyable than what today's college and university faculties have to say. Mr. Fernandez Packham puts in great time and effort on research, and it shows in his episodes. This is definitely a podcast of quality over quantity. He makes great use of primary source material. He brings back these voices from the past. Despite my decades of exploring this era, I find I'm always learning something new with each episode. This is not to be taken as a criticism, but I hope there are more bonus episodes around the great novels of the era. When one thinks of the cultural output of the era, the first thought that comes to most people's minds are the novels, whose stories have resonated over time. There is a reason people flock to watch the latest Victorian period drama, or there have been countless movies and miniseries of Jane Eyre and Great Expectations. Mr. Fernandez Packham did a wonderful bonus episode on Dickens' Christmas Carol, linking the story to Victorian society and ideas. I'm hoping for more. Finally, why should one be interested in this period? In many ways, modern society is facing similar challenges. Inequality in the developed world has reached new highs not seen since the late Victorian and Edwardian periods. Trends in artificial intelligence and robotics threaten the same level of socio-economic disruption as one saw with the Industrial Revolution. We all benefit from what the Victorians built. This process was not a smooth one. It was filmed with struggle and hardship. The Victorians experienced unprecedented change. Think about, say, in 1815, when this podcast starts at Waterloo. One travelled the seas, 
in wooden, wind-powered ships that Christopher Columbus would have recognised when travelled on land by horse-drawn vehicles. By the time of Victoria's death in 1901, the seas were filled with ships of iron and steel powered by coal that still inspire awe even today. To conclude, I enjoy listening to this podcast as I do my chores. It makes working around the house a much more pleasurable experience. This is such a wonderful review. There's so much that jumps out at me. I think the point about the information revolution we are living through is a very good one. Before the Victorians, society might easily have recognised itself looking back through earlier times. The Victorian world started as very recognisable, but by the end, it had changed the world into something completely new. Steam-driven dreadnoughts, electricity, the telegraph, germ theory, evolutionary theory, music recordings, mass photography. The world, as Victoria lay on her deathbed, was so different from the one she was born into. I think it is right that the age of information is seeing another transition. Even our physical objects are disappearing and shrinking. The smartphone replacing the camera, the calculator, the atlas, the compass, the music player, and much more. Will we handle the transition as well as the Victorians, or better, or worse? Is the age of information just going to amplify the worst parts of humanity as well as the best bits? If I was around in a hundred years, I'd host the Age of Information podcast and let people decide as they uploaded my digital lecture straight into their brains in the cloud. Good luck, whoever you are, future podcaster. Oh, and if you want my recommendation for a good Victorian TV series, I recommend the BBC adaptation of Elizabeth Gaskill's novel, North and South. It is an old series, but a really good one. I'll make sure to cover more novels at some point. Can't Play Pool in the UK says, quote, I love this podcast. The host has a lovely soft voice and presents the story with humour, respect and facts. As a bit of a newfound Victoriophile, is that a thing? Listening to this show in chronological order has filled in many a gap. Thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing. The latest episodes on Colonial Australia I have really liked. So I'm always interested in that part of British history, end quote. I'm really pleased to hear that. Colonialism is a key part of empire, and we will be revisiting the theme many times, probably in Canada and South Africa. Amy3561 says, quote, I've recently found this podcast, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Luckily, there's lots of episodes to catch up on, and I love the variety of subjects covered, especially in minisodes. Thank you very much for your work. Can't wait to hear more. End quote. Thanks very much. And I have quite a few topics for the next few months. Don't Call Me Nick says, As a fan of 19th century novels, I'm interested in the error. Mr. Fernandez Packham does meticulous research, presents it well, and his side trips into philosophy help me be aware of how society has and has not changed. End quote. It is always striking, isn't it? when we learn something about the Victorians and say, oh wait, we still do that. Finally, David Cram says, quote, Chris's Age of Victoria podcast is so compelling. You become an instant history buff, no matter what your background. Perhaps because Chris is a philosopher by training, 
He lets you understand not only what happened, but why. He is impartial, yet involved. He weaves stories with enthusiasm and well-researched objectivity. Recently, for example, he's embarked on the epic, often tragic story of Australia in the Victorian age. Despite living thousands of miles away and not having had an Australian upbringing, Chris penetrates the heart of the achievements and injustices of the Victorian colonial period. Or maybe it is because Chris is able to view these events from afar and with his philosopher's mind that we are able to access this very considered and fair-minded view of Australia's past. Chris has now produced several years' worth of podcasts and his vivacity never flags. Onward and upward, Chris. End quote. I honestly learnt so much about Australia as I did that research. And it was sometimes uplifting, sometimes totally heartbreaking. I'm glad I got to share it with you all. Right, that's all folks. As long as my microphone survives the move, I'll release the next main episode on the 1st of March 2021, hopefully picking up the story in Tasmania. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. And the show also has a Facebook page and group. Just search for The Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It takes less time than making a cup of coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to patreon.com and search for the Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.